0: The scripture reading for this morning is from Genesis chapter 16. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, "'May the wrong done to me be on you,' I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against one, everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beir Lahoi Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. To Abram, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're continuing in our series looking at the life of Abraham, and uh, last week we were in Genesis 15, real high point in uh, in the account of uh, Abraham, but also a high point in all of Scripture. Uh, We saw Genesis 15; we saw that God had provided through word and sign assurance to Abraham. In his faith, assurance of God's protection when he was afraid. Remember verse 1 started out with with, uh, God saying to Abraham, I'm your shield. So assurance of protection when he was afraid. God provided assurance of his faithfulness. When, When Abraham began to doubt, God invited Abraham out and said, look at the stars. If you could number them, so too shall your offspring be. So assurance of God's faithfulness when Abraham was doubting. And then finally, assurance of God's forgiveness when Abraham sinned, which was something that Abraham couldn't have fully understood in that moment. But we know as we understand the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15, that covenant in which God walked alone between the divided animal parts, saying, may it be done to me if either one of us fail to keep covenant. That was a demonstration of the grace of God that would be poured out on all who put their trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. So now we come to this passage in uh, chapter 16. We read in verse 16 that Abram was 86 years old at the time that we you know, see the events unfold in Genesis chapter 16. Now, Abraham was 75 when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. So it's been 13 years since he set out for Canaan. Uh, we also know that it's been 10 years th- uh, that he had been in Canaan. So 10 years in this land that was supposed to be for him and his offspring after him and yet no children 10 years in and he's not getting any younger and neither sarai so sarai now is someone who you know his wife has not yet conceived so how will an offspring be how how will abraham have a child it's not just that it hasn't happened yet it's Humanly speaking, not going to happen because the text tells us that Sarai was barren. It seems impossible that God should keep his promise to Abram when his wife cannot bear him a son. So, the picture we get in this chapter of Sarai is of a person who has grown impatient with God's progress. She's barren, she's not going to have a child. Or so it would seem. She knows that Abram has been told that he would have many children, but time is marching on, and so she has a proposition for Abram. Let's use my servant as a surrogate. So if with Sarai, we see a picture of a person who's grown impatient with God's progress. In Abram, we see a picture of a person who has grown indifferent to God's promise. Again, he had just had this mountaintop experience of God's grace. And yet when Sarai comes to him with this proposition, it's as if he just kind of, you know, shrugs his shoulders and says, okay, whatever. What's striking about Abram is his indifference to God's promise, given all that had taken place. And then we come to Hagar. Hagar isn't without her flaws. She grows proud when she conceives. But in the end, Hagar is the nameless, voiceless victim in this text. Abram and Sarai don't even mention her by name. And of course, they use her body to achieve their aim. She feels hidden. What do these three people have in common? All three, in their own way, fail to trust that God sees That God sees the predicament that they are in. That God remembers the promises that he has made. That God will not fail to do all that he has said that he will do. Now, we can forgive Hagar for not fully grasping that, but we can't really forgive Sarai for that, and, and certainly not Abram. It's narrative, so we need to ask, where do we see ourselves in this text? So where do we see ourselves? Perhaps in Sarai. Sarai was impatient with God's progress. Do you ever find yourself asking, God, why are you so slow to act? God, when are things going to change? When will you provide? Or do you see yourself in Abram? Abram was indifferent to God's promise. Have you ever been surprised by how quickly you go from this mountaintop experience of God's grace, where your your zeal for God and your love for him is so strong, nothing would ever seem to shake it to this point where you just find yourself cold and indifferent to him and his ways? And then Hagar. Hagar well Hagar was vulnerable and alone she was insignificant in the eyes of the people that she has left Sarai Abraham the others she would be insignificant to the people to whom she was returning when no one seems to see or care in the same way that Hagar felt that no one seemed to see or care do you believe that God sees And that God cares. So let's take a closer look at these three figures in this text. But of course, there's one more as well. There's the God who sees. So four points this morning. First, Sarah's impatience. Second, Abram's indifference. Third, Hagar's hiddenness. And then fourth, the God who sees. Sarah's impatience, Abram's indifference, Hagar's hiddenness, and the God who sees. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. We do pray that you would work by the power of your spirit through this, your word. Lord, would you help us to see ourselves in these flawed people, because we are flawed people as well. We're so thankful that you don't present us with human figures in the Bible that are, that are perfect and spotless and have it all figured out. Lord, you you give us people that we can see ourselves in so that we, like they, may see you more clearly. Lord, you are the hero of this text. You're the hero of every story. And so we pray, O God, that you would help us to see how you have revealed yourself to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, how it is, in fact, O God, that in all things we know that you are a God who sees. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Sarai's impatient. Sarai was impatient with God's progress. Take a look at verses one through three again. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, uh, Sarah Abram's wife took Hagar the Egyptian her servant and gave her to Abram as her husband as a wife. So she's barren. That was tragic. It was tragic then, it's tragic now for those who desire to have a children, to have to have children and are not able to conceive. In her culture, it was especially a mark of humiliation, unjustly to be sure, <clears throat> but was a mark of Humiliation for a woman to not be able to conceive in that culture. If she did conceive, it was a sign, so people thought, that she was uh, successful, that she was especially blessed by God. If she didn't conceive, it was a sign, so people thought, that she was a failure and that she was cursed by God. And so here is Sarai, wife of Abram, the one who has, you know, led his people on this journey of faith and he was awaiting the fulfillment of the promise that he would have a son and that he would have children that would grow to become as numerous as the stars in the sky and inherit the land and Sarai must have felt that she was in the way. Isn't she the one she must have felt that was Holding things up. And so she has a proposition Abram, take Hagar, take my wife. Now, that was actually common in the culture from which they had come. Back in Ur, they were pagans. And it was common in the cultures around them. Now, you may say, well, that isn't common in Judaism, but remember, Judaism isn't on the scene yet. This is just Abram who has been called from a pagan culture with his people who is now in a relationship with the living God and is beginning to know God in ways that we don't fully comprehend. He certainly knows enough to worship God. And yet he didn't have the the law of Moses, for instance, so, what did they have? They had the example of surrounding culture. They saw what happened there. They knew what they did back then. And even though you have to think that there was enough light in their knowledge of God to know that God would keep his promise somehow and bless through Sarai, yet they chose, and, and Sarai brought the proposition take Hagar. And so he did. And then Sarai, when Hagar conceived, Sarai, you know, blamed Abram for that fact. And of course, when she was at the beginning of the text, you know, telling us that she was barren, Sarai blamed God for that fact. Now, what does our impatience with God's progress reveal? Because we too grow impatient with God's progress. Our impatience reveals what we truly desire. I think that's what was happening for Sarai. It's interesting to me in verse two, about partway through verse two, Sarai says, Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, you've got to be careful not to read too much in here, but I do find it somewhat interesting that she doesn't say, It may be that we obtain children through her. Or it may be that you, Abram, to whom God has made this promise concerning a child, may, it may be that you, are able to bear a child through Hagar. She says, it may be that I shall bear a child, that I shall have a child through Hagar. So you can imagine, given the cultural expectations and the pressures that she would have felt as a woman in that culture to bear a child and not be able to, we can certainly sympathize with the possibility that her greatest desire was to be a mom, to have a baby. Now, we'll be able to ask her one day, but we do know our own hearts, don't we? We do know how, what seemed to be God's delay in timing, perhaps for a child, perhaps for a new job, perhaps for a spouse, perhaps to hear whether or not you've gotten into this school or that school. We do know how those delays can tend to, as we get anxious in the midst of those delays, expose the true desires of our hearts. Don't we? Our impatience reveals what we truly desire. Now, what might God be doing when things aren't progressing in the way that you expect? What what might God be doing? Well, it may be that what God is doing is deepening your dependence upon him. God, I had my plan for how this was going to unfold. I had my timeline. You're not hitting the marks, Lord. What's going on here? And in the process, you tend to learn that where else are you going to turn but to God? Only he can set the path straight. Only he can provide. He sets the benchmarks in the end. And he'll never fail to meet one of his benchmarks. So it may be that what God is doing is deepening your dependence upon him. It is certainly in the midst of those delays an opportunity to reorient your heart to him. Again, when that anxiety comes because things aren't progressing the way in which you had planned, we have the option in that moment to cast all those anxieties upon the Lord. Believing that he cares for you. An aspect of his care for you is not just that he will have you where he wants you, when he wants you there, but all along the way he will be present with you. He will comfort you. He will gladly take your anxieties upon his shoulders. Right? So then it's fair to ask if what God is doing is deepening our dependence on him and reorienting our heart to him, is that lack of progress really a lack of progress? In the end, if what God is doing is conforming us into the likeness of his son, which actually is the destination that matters most when it comes to who we are. So our impatience with God's progress is actually an opportunity that God provides for us to deepen our dependence and reorient our hearts toward him. But then secondly, we see Abram's indifference in this passage. Now, again, remember what has just happened in Genesis chapter 15. That amazing covenant-cutting ceremony in which God comes and does something that, again, as I mentioned last week, would have been foreign to our thinking, but absolutely would have made sense in their culture. Here's this more powerful figure, this king, who would come to a a king that he had conquered and cut, you know, have the animals cut apart, and then the the suzerain or the conquering king would walk with the vassal or the subjected king between the animal parts and, and the sign meaning that if the you know vassal king fails to pay tribute. Or if the suzerain or conquering king fails to provide protection, then may it be done to either one of them as has been done to these animals that have been cut in two. It was a covenant cutting ceremony, it was a way of invoking wrath upon yourself. But of course, in the passage in Genesis chapter 15, who walks between the animal parts? God, represented by the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, not Abraham. What a wonderful picture of God's grace. God is saying to Abraham, may it be done to me if either one of us fail to keep covenant. And of course, Abram did, and all of his offspring after him, with the exception of one, Jesus, who actually bore the curse in our place. Now that's amazing grace. Grace. Abraham must have been blown away by it. We're blown away by it if we really meditate on it and think about what God has accomplished for us through the cross of Jesus Christ. And yet here's Abram in Genesis 16, seemingly indifferent. He's certainly indifferent when Sarai comes to him and offers him Hagar. What he should have said in that moment to Sarai was, listen, God said he was gonna provide He's going to do this in a way that we can't fully understand, but we have to walk by faith. Let's rehearse the ways in which God has enabled us as we've trusted him, as he's provided for us, and let's rehearse the ways in which, as we have walked by sight and not by faith, we've experienced hardship. Sarah, I, I, let's, let's just remember, we can trust God. So no, I'm not going to take Hagar. Hagar. And then when Sarai came to him and was embittered because of uh, the way in which uh, Hagar was looking with contempt upon her, and when Sarai was saying, you know, this is your fault, Abram instead of saying, well, she's yours, do with her what you want, he should have said, no, we have an obligation to her. We need to protect her. But Abram was indifferent. He just didn't seem to care. Now... Why might that have been? I'm going to do something that I'll acknowledge as a bit of an inference. In Genesis 16, we don't read Abram doing something that we do tend to read him doing when he's being faithful to God, and that is worshiping God. When we read back through the earlier chapters, when we don't see Abram building altars and worshiping God It's usually in chapters in which he's walking by sight and not by faith. And then in the chapters when he is walking by faith and not by sight, we read of him building altars and worshiping God. And so again, I don't want to push too hard into this. I think we can fairly make application in our own lives, but I do find it significant that we don't see Abram worshiping God in this chapter. So it may be that Abram had in a way cut himself off from God he had maybe isolated himself when it came to his relationship with the Lord now again that's a maybe when it comes to what's happening in the text but we do know from our own experience that when we isolate ourselves from God when we don't engage in regular worship of him corporately or privately our hearts grow cold we grow indifferent toward Him and His ways and His will for our lives. And so I think one of the dangers that we need to guard against, lest we grow indifferent and cold toward God, is isolation from God not availing ourselves of the means of grace that he provides, being here on Sunday morning, worshiping him, knowing that by his spirit he is present and seeks to minister to us through word and sacrament, not, you know, not, not shrinking back from the opportunities that we need to seize each day to spend time in his word and to engage with him in prayer, to have fellowship with our Father in this way. If we have families, to, to not engage in, in family discipleship, to spend time in family worship. These are all ways in which we either you know, actually or by example isolate ourselves from God. Live as if he just isn't there. Our hearts grow cold when that happens. It doesn't matter what kind of mountaintop experience we had a month ago or a year ago or when we first gave our lives to Christ. Our hearts grow cold over time. Now, again, this is not a you know legalistic thing where if you just you know drop the uh, if you just do these things, then what will inevitably follow is nearness to God and a sense of warmth and fire and love to Him. That's not what I'm saying. What I am suggesting is that it's like, um, well, it's in a way, it's like Elijah. When Elijah was commanded by God to go out on the mountain, and, and Elijah, you know, cut the wood, and, and, and then God said, pour all that water, all that water on top of the wood, and then put the animal sacrifices on top, and God came down and, and lit the fire. Now, the fact of the matter is, when we come to worship service, when we spend time reading God's word, When we spend time in prayer and in family worship, we're laying wood. And also, our hearts are distracted, our our thoughts are elsewhere, and we're inconsistent. And that's like so much water that we dump on the wood. And yet, God is so good. He comes by His Spirit through word and sacrament. And He brings fire. And so we come here... We seek to to listen. When When we go before God in prayer, we confess our distraction and our anxiety, and we say, God, here I am. Would you bring fire to this heart of mine? And by God's grace, He's pleased to do so. And so we can't isolate ourselves from God, lest we grow indifferent. And I think also we have a benefit that Abram didn't have, and that's the community of God's people. We have the church. We can't isolate ourselves from each other either. Whether we isolate ourselves from God or we isolate ourselves from His people, the inevitable result is that we grow cold in our faith. We find ourselves feeling indifferent toward God and His ways. And then we come third to Hagar's hiddenness. Hagar felt hidden from God's presence. The text tells us that she was an Egyptian servant. They most likely acquired Hagar when they were in Egypt, when Abram had fled Canaan and gone to Egypt because there was a famine in the land of Canaan. So they would have acquired, most likely, Hagar there. They've you know, taken her you know, back to Canaan with, with them. And now it appears that she is on a long trek back to Egypt. Egypt. Where the the angel finds uh, Hagar is at the southern tip of Canaan on the way back toward Egypt. She's carrying an incredible burden. She had been poorly treated by Sarai. She was pregnant with Ishmael. She was a single mom. And she was alone in the desert. And yet she is so blessed in this passage in ways that we can't fully comprehend just from the text. Hagar is the only matriarch, the only woman in Genesis who is promised descendants. Abram was promised descendants. Jacob, promised descendants. Isaac, promised descendants. Only, the only woman in Genesis who is promised descendants is Hagar, the only person in the Old Testament, male or female, to confer a name on God, is Hagar. Scholars have pointed out that in the entirety of ancient Near Eastern literature that has been discovered to date, this is the only time that a deity speaks directly to a woman. Hagar felt as if she was all alone, hidden, without help and without hope in the world. And yet what we learn from the text and what we understand from history is that she was loved by God. She was seen. She was blessed. And then she obeyed. What a remarkable example she is to us. She listened to God. She walked by faith and not by sight. When God said, go back, she went back. She returned and she endured what she found there. What did we learn from Hagar? A couple things, I think. First, it is not always God's will to take us out of hard circumstances. Now, if you are being abused, if you are unsafe, then yes, you must seek safety. But most of us find ourselves in situations that fall short of that. We find ourselves in jobs that feel like they're just dead-end jobs. We find ourselves with bosses who don't appreciate the work that we do. We find ourselves in relationships, perhaps in a marriage that feels loveless, is cold. We find ourselves in difficult circumstances with life not playing out the way that we thought it would. We have a child that requires extra care. We, We have a family member who we have to spend a lot of time and energy devoting ourselves to. Things just don't go the way that we thought they would go. And we look for an escape. There there must be an end to this. And there are some hard circumstances from which God does not call us. That in fact, he calls us to endure. It's not always God's will to take us out of hard circumstances. And then this, our significance is found in the eyes of God alone. Our significance is found in the eyes of God alone. When Sarai I'm sorry when Hagar became pregnant she looked with contempt on Sarai there was a sense in which this person who had been unseen by so many wanted to make sure that she had something that her mistress didn't have at the end of the day whose opinion matters in whom whose eyes do we ultimately need to be seen and treasured and loved and valued the eyes of God alone He's the only one who matters he is the only one who sees Verse 13 Hagar says you are the God who sees me the name of the well means the well of the living one who sees me Hagar was able to rest and rejoice in the fact that even though she was going back to a hard circumstance She knew now the God who sees. So let's look last, finally, at the God who sees. Verse 10. Now let's go back up to verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Uh, the spring on the way to shore and he said to her hagar servant of sarai where have you come from and where are you going now commentators are mostly in favor of the idea that this is actually a a theophany or perhaps even a christophany a a pre-incarnate revelation of the second person of the trinity of jesus christ others say no this is simply a messenger from god delivering the word of god I I tend to think that it's the former and not the latter, that this is a manifestation of God in some way, a theophany, perhaps a Christophany. But what is being brought to bear in the life of Hagar is the word of God, even if it's just an angel. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Bringing a word from the Lord. God is speaking to Hagar. He's saying to her, not... I've heard your plea in the midst of your affliction. Look, look at the text. Verse 11. Behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. There's a sense in which even the agony that she's in, that, that as far as the text would tell, she hasn't vocalized yet to God. God is saying, I'm aware of your affliction. There's a sense in which I, I hear it. I see it. I see you. I know What you're going through. This is what God is saying to Hagar. He is the God who sees. And in the same way that that God sought out Adam and Eve when they tried to hide from God, so too, God is coming to Hagar and he is seeking out her in the midst of her feeling of hiddenness. God is the God who sees. What difference does that make in your life today? When you are impatient with God's progress, what difference does it make that God is a God who sees? It is hard to know whether faith should act or whether faith should wait when you're facing a decision that has to be made. It's hard. We need wisdom. We need need prayer. We need help from other people around us. We, We need ultimately to either step out in faith or wait in faith. Either way, it's an act of faith. Here's the good news when it comes to the God who sees. Whether you look back and realize, man, I acted when I should have waited or I waited when I should have acted, the bottom line is the God who sees you now is the God who saw you then. He says, I will work all things together for good. That doesn't mean that there, are, that there aren't circumstances that can't be undone. Did I say that right? Let me get rid of the double negative. There are some circumstances that can't be undone. There are some things that we just can't change. Some things that we have to endure. Choices that we've made in the past. However, God is the God who sees us now. God is the God who saw us then. And God is the God who will not turn his gaze away from you. What difference does it make that God sees when you are indifferent to his promise? When your heart has grown cold toward God, God is greater than your heart. In the same, day, say, in the same way that John would say in 1 John 3, that, that when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. So too, when our hearts are indifferent, God is greater than our hearts. He will woo back to himself Those whom are his own. No matter how cold your heart may be toward God right now, do not think that that's the end for you. Turn to God. Say, God, here I am in my indifference. Would you deepen my affection for you? And then finally, when you feel hidden from God's presence, what difference does it make that God sees? It makes all the difference in the world. You, you can know wherever you are right now that God is there ready to refresh you with his presence. I, I think it's amazing. It's, it's just kind of mentioned in the text that, that she was by a well, Hagar was, when God came to her. It reminds me of a, another woman later in John chapter 4 who would be met by God at a well, a woman who felt like she was insignificant in the eyes of the world. And yet there at that well, the one who offers living water said to that woman, drink. So too for each one of us. God comes to us in our feelings of indifference, our feelings of impatience, and our feelings of hiddenness and says, I'm here. Come to me. God sees and hears and he shows mercy. He shows mercy When we are impatient with his progress, he shows mercy. When we are indifferent to his promise, he shows mercy. When we feel hidden from his presence, God's mercy is manifest to us ultimately in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who is infinitely patient with his father's plan. He knew when his time had not yet come. And he knew when his time had come. And when his time had come, he set his face resolutely toward the cross. He was patient with the Father's plan. Jesus is the one who never grew indifferent to God's promises. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He earnestly, deliberately, and with focused zeal that did not waver, go to the cross to bear the curse. For our sin. And yet, if anyone should feel hidden from God's presence, it's Jesus, isn't it? From the sixth to the ninth hour on the cross, when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, the Son of God could have felt, must have felt, hidden in a way that you and I have never felt hidden. He experienced that sense of being cut off from God. So that you and I, as we look to him, would never experience being cut off from God. Even when we feel hidden, we have a God who is gracious and who always sees. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who sees. Lord, for some of us, that is terrifying. And yet it need not be. You are a God who who knows us, who knows what's going on deep in our hearts, who knows what's going on in those times when we're alone. Lord, you know. You see. And yet in your Son, you extend to us grace. So, Lord, would you help us to trust and rest in your knowledge of us, To trust and rest in the fact that your plan is good. To trust and rest in the fact that when we feel that no one sees, and perhaps no one does, you do. And in that we can find great joy. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.